0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open up to Luke chapter 24. I'm very thankful. To God that he's gotten us to the end of the gospel of Luke, not because it's ending, but that we made it here. Um, this is the 132nd sermon on Luke, three years and two months of preaching with a few, few Sundays, in that we went in other directions, but praise God for that, um, and uh, what we'll be taking up Next Sunday, Lord willing is uh, First Timothy. But let's stand now for the reading of these last few verses of the Gospel of Luke. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Luke 24:50 to the end. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. The passage we just read is one of the... The, the events that we read in this passage is one of the hinges of history. It's like the creation. It's like man's fall. It's like the reiterations of the covenant of grace with, with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David with Christ. Um, it's like Christ's inc- incarnation. It's um, like Christ's death, like his resurrection. Now it's Christ's ascension that we give our thoughts to. All of these events are, that I just named are, are like um, turning points, pillars, or heights of God's work in history. Uh, of course, God is providential over all events, and that packs everything that happens with great significance, but there are certain acts of God that inevitably stand out. And certainly those acts of God that were accomplished by his son stand out. So Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, is going away, fulfilling what is recorded for us in another gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 16. You remember these words of Jesus. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so it was to the advantage of these apostles and every believer in every age for Jesus to go away and to leave this world and ascend into heaven. Because if he hadn't, if he had stayed, the Holy Spirit would not have come. That's what he says. The Holy Spirit would not have come if he had stayed. It's evident that Jesus went to heaven, to the presence of his Father, so that he might command the Holy Spirit to come. And to do what? What is the Holy Spirit going to do in a manner it seems better than Jesus could have done? To convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, to bring conviction. Right, That is the phase of the history of God's redemption that we continue in today. Spirit bringing conviction. Holy Spirit is active right now convicting the world of man's sin, God's righteousness, and Jesus' coming judgment. Take a moment to think about whether that is what characterizes our mainline, our evangelical, even more closely to home our reformed churches today and you might think that the holy spirit has abandoned our churches perhaps he has so we must repent of grieving the spirit and call upon him to restore and refresh our churches to bring what to bring conviction conviction concerning sin righteousness and judgment we see much tickling of ears in the church in america but very little preaching on sin, righteousness, and judgment. In our passage in Luke, we have, I mean, it's, it's a very simple summary of these historically significant events. It's, uh, it is somewhat understated here, perhaps because of the elaboration that Luke gives in the first chapter of Acts. We read about the same events there. If you turn to Acts chapter 1, There's some overlap. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord. Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, there are more details there concerning their final conversation. That question the apostles asked him about his kingdom, the cloud that received him out of their sight, and the angels explaining that he had been taken up to heaven and would come back in just the same way. Um, And certainly there is much that can be said about those verses, but I want to preach the text in Luke and limit us to those details. So... Because there's a lot there as well. So how does the Holy Spirit finish the Gospel of Luke? We have two verses about what Jesus did. And then we have two verses about what the disciples did in response to what Jesus did. They had been in Jerusalem. But Jesus, did you notice this? Jesus leads them out of Jerusalem and into this little suburb um, outside the city to Bethany. His ascension happens outside of Jerusalem and um, near this this small village. I mean, is there any significance to this? What could be the reason for, for him leading them out of Jerusalem to Bethany? Ryle thinks this. I'm not sure he's right, but he says that it was so that he could include Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he loved. Um, there's, he says, there's something very touching in the fact that our Lord's ascension took place close to Bethany. It was a small village bordering on the Mount of Olives where, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus dwelt. It is probable that they were, they were present when our Lord left the earth. Um, Calvin thinks that it has more to do, and I think he's right, it has more to do with not being in Jerusalem than it has to do with being near Bethany. Uh, Calvin writes, Now as he did not, after his resurrection, appear indiscriminately to all, so he did not permit all to be witnesses of his ascension to heaven. For he intended that this mystery of faith should be known by the preaching of the gospel rather than be held by the eyes. So in that sense, Jesus is in going outside of Jerusalem so that not many would see this ascension. Jesus is entrusting the next step. The preaching, of, uh, the preaching of the word of God to these men that he has called. These 11 that are there. It shows his confidence not simply in these men. But in the power that the Holy Spirit will bring in when he sends him. does not need to provide mankind with another miracle because what is coming will have more power than the testimony of a miracle. It will be the preaching of the word by these apostles. So Jesus led them out of Jerusalem to the little village of Bethany. Then we learn that he he lifted his hands and he blessed them. This is a picture of the high priest about to enter the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And before he does so, he raises his hands and pronounces a final benediction, so to speak. Was it merely a raising of hands without words? Uh, was, it, was he pronouncing the Aaronic blessing of number six, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace? Well, we don't know. It just says that he raised his hands and blessed them. Um, So it does us no good to speculate because we only read of his actions, but the actions are those of the priest. And as the priest and together as the priest and as the sacrifice, vicarious atoning sacrifice, he lays on their shoulders this final blessing. His final act before leaving is to bless his apostles. For three years, he had been teaching them. For three years, he's been rebuking them as they lack faith. For three years and near the end, he's been patiently restoring them. But now at the last moment, what he gives them is a blessing. It's ugly, you know, when a dying person who is able to communicate uses his last words to lay burdens or guilt trips or rebukes on the people around him. Isn't it? It's ugly in our last moments with people, which we, I mean, in a sense we never face last moments with people because we're all connected by virtual reality. And so we very seldom say goodbye to people. We very seldom say like a final goodbye to people. Um, but but should we face moments like that, the moment is made gracious and good when we offer, if we need to, forgiving and blessing at those points. Forgiveness, blessing, kindness. Here Jesus blesses these apostles who not long ago, 40 days ago, had abandoned him. He could have offered rebuke. He could have offered uh, intense rebuke. But what he offers them in the final word is blessing. Think of the encouragement that this would be to these men who are just beginning to, to understand just the difficulty of the work that lies ahead. As a point of self-examination, think about whether your words for others, like your children, are always critical or whether they include blessings. Uh, To bless is to invoke God's blessing on others. Does our pride, does our critical nature, or our sense of justice and responsibility keep us from simply blessing others with kindness, with reminders of God's work? Uh, Could Jesus have left them in some other manner? Absolutely. Do they have sins that would affect their ministry? Absolutely. Do they have distractions that would pull them away from the work that they have to do, that they've been ordered to do? Yes, Jesus could have mentioned all of them and left them sobered, but discouraged. And so let's do better at removing burdens from people, from our children, from our aging parents, from our spouses. Speak blessings, right? Speak are reminders of God's goodness. Practice affirmation. right, And seek to encourage. The wicked man is described in Psalm 109 this way. He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. The wicked man does not delight in blessing. This is why the wicked gossip. This is why the wicked gossip and put the worst possible spin on every situation they can rather than offering blessings and encouragements. Of course, don't over, um, overthink what I'm talking about. It's one thing to curse others. It's quite another to rebuke and speak the truth. Um, parents are called to discipline their children. They're called, uh, they're called to wound their friends with the truth. But one can't be monotone speaking only on one side or the other, right? That is why blessings and rebukes take, both take faith. Blessings take faith. And they take discernment. Um, here at the last moment, Jesus could have said anything, but all he does is raise his hands and bless and leave. As Jesus is blessing them, hands raised in the air, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus is now gone from the apostles. For 24 chapters, Luke has been telling us about Jesus being there. And now in the last few verses comes the report of his being gone, his departure. Think now of this aspect of Jesus' departure. Think of Jesus' joy. Think of Jesus' joy. He, he is, he yes, I think there's some grief in him leaving behind his disciples. But we, we have to think beyond just his relationship to these men and think of where he was going to. We so often think only of Jesus in terms of our redemption, of what it means for our emotional and spiritual vibes. But we don't think about the Godhead. He has joy because he is going forward to something for which he has recently prayed, John 17. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God the Son won the victory. God the Son accomplished the redemption of mankind as it was laid out to him by the Father. He now returns to his Father to rest in the glory that he had with him before the foundation of the world. The Father had encouraged him through the task, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Son had cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now, now he's going back. To be with his Father in glory. If you ever doubt the love of God, if you ever doubt the love of God, think on the love that exists between the Father and the Son. That defines the very being of God, it defines the ontology, the very being of God. The task Jesus performed was not joyful, it was shameful. It was filled with reproach. It was agony. It was cursedness. It was the opposite, the very stark opposite of blessedness. But there was joy set before him. Right? This joy of the love of his Father. This is why we say, along with the Apostle Paul, that the goal of the work of redemption was not merely the salvation of mankind, it has a higher goal which is the goal of everything, to the praise of his glory. All mankind, all the work of Jesus Christ, all the acts of the Holy Spirit in history are means to that end, the praise of the glorious God. All of remaining history, Jesus' return, the coming judgment, and then the never-ending fires of hell, and the never-ending feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb are means to that end. The praise of the glorious God. It's icing on the cake that you get saved in the midst of that. Those twenty-four elders in the throne room of God announce what is the sum of everything, and the sum of everything is this: worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. That's the end of everything, the glory of God. If the redemption of mankind had not glorified God, then then it would have easily been left behind. In other words, there is a sense in which redemptive history is about something bigger than God forgiving mankind their rebellion and sin. Perhaps we should call it doxological history rather than redemptive history doxological history the goal of all things the end of all things the reason for all things is simply that god is worthy to receive glory and honor and power and how wonderful that you and i would be swept up in something like that blessed by it this is summed up in that doxology from uh, paul in romans right romans 11 oh the depth Through him, to him, are all things, even the redemption that his son did, the creation of all things, everything that's ever happened, is not so that you might be saved, but that God might be glorified. And it appears the apostles finally begin to understand these glories. Finally, in this book, our text closes with two verses about their response to his blessing and departure. And they after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. They received the blessing of Jesus Christ. They worship him. They go to Jerusalem joyfully and they worship him more continually. They worship God. They worship God. They recognize the glory of God. They see and understand. They are happy worshipers of God. Of their God, the Lord Jesus Christ, happily worshiping. Now, where is our joy, dear brothers and sisters? Why so, Why is joy so hard for us? Why so little joy among us and in our homes? I mean, have we forgotten the testimony of Scripture about the power of God? Have we lost our first love? Have we forgiven, I mean, forgotten? the effects of the work of Jesus Christ for those who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths. How can such little defeats in our lives, little defeats, a trip to the DMV, how can all those little defeats in our lives, which are actually given by God for our good, outweigh the joy of our union with Jesus Christ? Our promised resurrection, our invitation to this feast where God will be declared worthy. Where the end of all history will be celebrated. I mean, our joy is so thin, it's so light, it's so temporary and tossed about. Is it that we are living, I mean, joy, okay, the happiness of the apostles here. Is it that we are living as James commends to sinners and so joy is not the need of the moment? Right? Draw near to me and he will near, draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I don't think that's the case. That's not why we lack joy because we're obeying the command to turn our joy to gloom. Because our repentance is about as thin as our joy. If we were to humble ourselves in the manner laid out in James, our exaltation would be present in thick joyfulness, right? Because of our, the depth of our repentance. Calvin says this, and I think it's helpful. This joy is contrasted with the fear which formerly kept the apostles retired and concealed at home. This joy they now have going right into the temple, praising the name of Jesus Christ, this joy that they have is counterpointed to fear. We often think that the opposite of joy is what? Sorrow. Gloom, as James puts it. But certainly in my own experience, fear. Fear is what douses the flames of my joy. It is not the fear of God I'm talking about right now. That should lead to joy. But it's the fear of the world that kills our joy. Fear of our sins being exposed. Fear of failure. Fear of disease. Fear of vaccinations for disease. Fear of loneliness, fear of people, fear of offending our oversensitive spouses and parents, fear of poverty, fear of floods, fear of embarrassment, fear of disappointing others, fear of political powers, fear of responsibility, fear of authority, fear of autonomy, fear of spiders, fear of, I mean, Fears, fears, fears. We go from one fear to another fear to another fear to another fear. You fill in the blank with your fears. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified. Him. Now, skipping forward a bit in Romans chapter 8, think of this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is was at the right hand of God. Who intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer Through him who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those apostles on that day who witnessed Jesus departing were filled with joy Because they knew that whatever occurred to them from that point on, their souls were safe in Jesus Christ. They had no reason to fear because the conquering Son of God had finished his task, had risen from the dead, had ascended to the right hand of the Father where he would always intercede for for them. What's to fear? What's to fear, Christian? If that's true, what's to fear? Nothing. Nothing. How can I say that? Jesus died, rose, and ascended. There is nothing to fear in this life. Here's our new reality. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All joy and peace and believing. We're plagued with fears for this reason. We're plagued with fears because we have very small views of God and are very forgetful about what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And where he currently resides. to The right hand of the Father. That erases all of our fears. That gives us the reason why we can... We can overwhelmingly conquer through all the challenges that come upon us. And we need not fear. Repent of those fears and do so by believing in the reality that has been given to us by union with Christ and by his resurrection, ascension, and session to God the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so, so many of our decisions are made not because we fear you, but because we have fears. We fear this world and men. And Father, when we do so, we're forgetful of the redemption, the glory that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we we ask you to forgive us cleanse us from this unrighteousness and, and, and sanctify us that we might live in this life giving praise to you as those elders do around your throne rather than giving voice to our constant fears through grumbling and complaining and worrying. Everything has changed because of the work that your son has done. And so I pray that we would have peace and joy and In believing in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. in 1st Corinthians 11 about this table for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this As often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he... He does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so we rejoice in these these words. We rejoice in this meal where we're invited to partake of the very body and blood of the one who died to save us from our sins. We do so by faith, and those who have made profession, those who believe in him, those who have done the work of self examination, been baptized into his church, I welcome to this table. Let us pray. Our Father, we are we are sinful men and women. And we know that it is only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can come to this table in a worthy manner. It is only by the work of redemption. It is only by the merit and the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has earned and applied to us that we can come to this table. And so, Father, we ask that through these means of this ordinary bread and ordinary wine. That you would sanctify us and nourish us. We thank you that you have offered to us the body and blood of your son. And Father, we, we pray that as we are nourished on him, that we would walk in a manner worthy of him because he is worthy of all praise and glory our dominion. And Father, we pray these things in the name in his name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.